Hello, hello everyone on Education Monsters. We're here with Roger and he's in here with us from Boston, Massachusetts. And that's where I met him. So I'm here in Montreal and we're meeting through Zoom. So welcome to you. Hello. Hey, so I'll introduce this guy. So Roger has completed a Bachelor's of Science in Engineering from Northwestern. Then he did an MBA at the National Taiwan University. And he briefly went to med school at Tufts University in Massachusetts. And now he started a snow removal business on top of doing a bunch of Airbnb business. Welcome to you. Hi, everyone. How are you? Well, I'm doing great. And thank you so much for accepting to be here. It's very nice uh, seeing you again. Yeah, it's good to see you too. Yeah, great I guess to be we have a podcast. I know, right? It was high time for that. So could you introduce yourself uh, to our listeners and who you are? How did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Sure. Um, so by typical standards, people would say that I'm Asian American. I'm of Chinese descent. I'm also part Hawaiian. Uh, 116th Hawaiian. I was born and raised in Hawaii. So I culturally identify more as an American and um, as a Hawaiian initially. It wasn't until I lived abroad in China and Taiwan did I become more comfortable and familiar with my Asian side, my Chinese side to be specific. It was during that time when I learned uh, the language, the culture, the festivals, um, all the other things involved. But before that, I was raised quite Hawaiian and quite American. So anything Chinese, up until 20 years old, I didn't know like the music, the language, you know, the festivals. I was eating these Chinese foods and I didn't know how or why I was eating it. I was just doing it because the grandparents said to do it. Was that a choice of yours to emancipate yourself from this culture? Or was it your parents' choice to sort of remove you? Yeah, good that? question. As I growing up, I identified, you know, as not even American. I, I identified definitely more with Hawaii because I was from Hawaii. For me, America was like a very far away place, which it is. But obviously language and education I was being you know Americanized even though I knew it or not um, but it wasn't until I had to choose a foreign language for high school and they were like well do you want to choose Japanese Spanish you know Hawaiian or Chinese and I said well I'm Chinese so I should choose that language turns out that language is one of the hardest languages to learn out of the choices foreign language so I actually struggled um, in high school I didn't really like it but I think given that my teachers and my classmates ridiculed me on how stupid I was in Chinese even though I knew <laughs> I was smart in all my other subjects it kept me to continue to learn the language so even going to engineering school at Northwestern you're not required to take a foreign language but I chose to take Chinese and I further put myself through more struggle and misery because all those kids in that college class for Chinese were all speaking like fluent Mandarin and Cantonese at home so they were all very surprised too like why I couldn't even get a B because to them it was like an easy A so that further pushed me to like study abroad and you know actually live in the culture and the language and be a, you know amongst my people I guess of Chinese and Taiwanese descent so It was kind of weird going back to my high school teachers, actually, and then speaking fluently to them and showing them how much characters I knew because they obviously expected me to be the worst out of all the classmates. And so ironically, I guess this handicap initially became like a motivational, inspirational thing for me to keep on learning Chinese. Because a lot of the people who spoke fluent Mandarin or Cantonese at home, they never really like learned anything outside of the house because there's like, you know, economics, politics, all kinds of, you know, religion. There's all these other topics that you don't talk about at home. And I was able to understand these topics as well because it requires like schooling to, to learn on these topics. So that's a long answer to a small question. How did your family take it? Were they surprised? Uh, did they push yeah. you to do it? Not really. They didn't push me or 
at least I'm not aware, aware of them pushing me or saying, don't do it. They were just like, well, you got to learn a foreign language, you know, enjoy yourself or you, you need to go abroad. Uh, none, none of them really said anything directly. Like I'm proud that you're, you know, learning the language and the culture, or this is a good thing. Or, you know, they just were kind of okay with it. Didn't think too much of it. But like now looking back, I think it was very, very, very beneficial. My grandpa wrote an autobiography all in Chinese characters. And I'm the only one of my generation to be able to read it. And so I translated it along with my uncle. He did his own translation, but I did mine. And to me, that whole process of taking every single character and trying to turn it into English was like a huge motivating factor and an opportunity to learn more about the language, but also my grandfather um, documented all of his life journey from like almost World War One all the way through like 2018, I think, when he did pass away. So, you know, I think just talking to him too, when I would like see a character and I'd have to ask him in Chinese, like, well, what, what, what did you mean by this sentence or whatever? I think all these opportunities like allowed me to get closer to my grandpa. And so my relationship with my grandpa compared to all of his other grandkids is uh, on a different level because of the ability to, to connect with him on, on that level. And he also shared with me, I don't know if he shared with other people in English, but he shared with me how he met grandma. And so he actually met grandma supposedly in an air elevator in a Hong Kong office building. Turns out they're both from the same village. So I think there's more to it because I don't think the coincidence <laughs> of the same village girl meeting serendipitously in an elevator in Hong Kong. But he did say that's how he met or like the first time he met grandma was in a office elevator in Hong Kong. But yeah, my grandpa could speak many languages too. He spoke English, obviously. He spoke Chinese. He spoke Shanghainese, Cantonese. You know, he's lived in all these different cities in China and so had to learn uh, the language of that region. Uh, he also is ethnically Hakka, so he had to learn Hakkanese as well. So yeah, I mean, I, my grandpa could speak like five different languages or dialects. My dad could speak two or three, you know, dialects and languages. And for me, I can just speak, you know, Mandarin. It becomes less and less over time, but hopefully if I do have kids, like they can at least be bilingual or trilingual. So that's the hope. If you were used to uh, speaking English in your household the whole mm -hmm. time to your parents, because yeah. they mostly chose one language over right. two, yeah. is it weird now to speak to them in Mandarin? Or do you think that you can talk about different things that you were not able to while growing up? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, by default, speak English to my dad. Uh, my mom passed away, by the way, but my dad, I speak English to, but only when I really want to get across a point where I feel like he's not listening to me, then I say it in Chinese, just so he doesn't have an excuse to not say, oh, I didn't understand, or I don't know what you're saying, or I didn't hear you. So like, and I think when I use Chinese, his mother tongue, then it's like the emphasis is even stronger. Like I'd be like, why didn't you do that? And then, and then I'll say like in Chinese, like, and then it's like, it's like the same meaning, but if when you say it in a different language, to me personally, I feel like it's, it has a very stronger response, I guess. Like there's a more visceral reaction <laughs> when you say it in your mother tongue. So I think the same with like, you know, swearing, like if you swear in a foreign language, it doesn't have as much meaning, but you swear in your native language, like, oh, okay. Oh, this person's crazy, <laughs> angry at me now or like want something from me, you know? So, you know. So to, to the side of the family, would you say that you can be more integrated, but is there a part of you that still know that, oh, you can still maintain an accent or you don't have the same fluency as you would have in English? How do you feel? Yeah, so I, yeah, I don't think I have any accent in English because I learned more Chinese, but I definitely have uh, an accent in Chinese and it is Americanized, but I 
I'm not sure if I consciously or unconsciously maintain some American accent to my Chinese, but I definitely also have a Taiwanese accent. So I've lived in Taiwan more years than China. So initially, my Chinese accent was Beijing style, like a lot of R, like Chunara. But now it's more like Taiwanese. So Taiwan is like Chunali. So that's like a more Taiwanese style. So more Southern versus Northern, I guess. It's kind of like, you know, y'all in, in America or. I think the standard of English, I think, is in Chicago. That's what I've been told. It's like the Midwest uh, CNN style is kind of where standard English is. But so, yeah, I definitely have accent in Chinese. So people can tell, oh, you're not native. But at the same time, I'm not trying to achieve native because I know I'm not native. So I'm okay with it, I guess. And what's the prominent accent in Hawaii? Uh, so Hawaii has their own accent. Yeah, it's called pidgin. So uh, it's kind of actually like Chinese, but Chinese grammar with English. So instead of saying like, let's go to the beach, uh, they'll just say, let's go beach. So, like, or you know, beach. we go beach. So a lot of the grammar and uh, the accent is kind of a, a mix of, you know, Asian influence, American English, uh, Hawaiian. Hawaiian also has words and grammar in there too. So as Singapore also has something similar like Singlish. So we have our own pidgin English. So yeah, it's only used when talking to locals. So right now, obviously I'm speaking just like what I believe is English. But when it, if a local shows up, then I'll like transfer my... My English. It will still be speaking English, but more simplified version of English. Like instead of saying, do you drive a car? We'll say things like, do you drive one car? So, I mean, in, in Chinese, you would say, 你, 你开一个车子, like one. So A and one is like, we use interchangeably. So we just say one. You get one cup, you get one spoon. So in Chinese, it'd be, 你有没有一个? spoon or fork you know or car so i mean you can you can still get the same meaning across it just doesn't sound as smooth you know just like one instead of a or you like go you like go have fun you know in english you'd say would you like to have fun you like go have fun you like you like go have fun it's like so the more i think about it the more i feel like it's just chinese turned into english but like broken chinese broken english i guess yeah it's very interesting that you got interested and more connected to your culture through language but there's so many other channels you could have done that like through food like you were saying for some other people it's through movies or music mm -hmm. it seems like it, it was just like a random coincidence that high school happened mm -hmm. to have that language as an option mm -hmm. but yeah. if if your high school did not have chinese what would you have picked and do you think that you would not have the same connection to china at all yeah i think that's a good question um, I was lucky and privileged to be able to take Chinese in high school uh, at the time. Not many U.S. high schools were offering Chinese. I think a lot of them offer them now. But if I wasn't taking Chinese, I probably would have taken like Latin, you know, for academic reasons, because Latin is useful, I think, in like English or medical related stuff. Or else I probably would have taken Hawaiian. Hawaiian is obviously a local language. It's one of the easier languages to learn. So that's, or Spanish. I heard Spanish is easy, so I probably would have learned Spanish. But yeah, I, I, I got thrown Chinese. My first teacher was from Hong Kong. So she taught me like Cantonese Mandarin. My second teacher was from Taiwan. So she taught Taiwanese Mandarin. And then I had another teacher that was from Beijing. So like I was learning the same Chinese, but from three different regions. And they're very different in terms of how they pronounce it and how they write it. And, and so for anyone learning Chinese, it's a long journey because you have to learn Chinese from so many different regions. And that affects like pinyin, that affects like juyin fu hao, bopomofo, that affects traditional versus simplified characters, way guiles. There's so many different ways to communicate in Chinese that it does get kind of confusing to the average learner. Yeah, when you applied for your MBA in Taipei, did you have mm -hmm. to also pass the language requirements to make sure that you could follow classes in the so, language? So 
They didn't. They didn't have those language requirements. I was pretty lost, to be honest, in my first semester. So I actually didn't pass my courses in the first year, first semester of MBA because I was fo more focused on learning just the language than, and language meaning like business Chinese. So I didn't have any business Chinese. Like, you know, your average language class in the entire world doesn't focus on just business. They focus on like food or activities or weather. They don't focus on like interest rates or return on investment or, you know, leverage, like these kind of terms. So I was learning all that in the first three, four months. I failed those classes and then it took me actually two and a half years. So my MBA took two and a half years to complete. I was able to do it because my classmates helped me. They taught me the, the lingo. They taught me the business. They taught me a lot of things. So I couldn't have done it without my classmates. And I tried to show appreciation back to them by you know, taking them out for dinners and stuff because it, it wasn't that expensive. So I was like, yeah, five, $10 meal, whatever. It's not a big deal. Obviously in America, if I took out my classmates, it'd be like 30 to 50. So it was a little easier, but that was just like my way of showing appreciation. They obviously probably would have helped me regardless because they're very nice people there, but that was my way of showing thanks for uh, helping me get through it. And then it's just the Taiwanese spirit or maybe it's the Chinese spirit. I'm not totally sure, but they're just very like group oriented. So they want the whole group to succeed, which is interesting now that I reflect on it. But like in Asia, a lot of your friends are all school based in America they could be like religion based or they could be you know activity or sports based but in especially in Asia I've noticed like a lot of their friends are all very school based so they create very strong bonds from elementary school high school college and so I feel that if I ever had to rely on them if they're in China Europe America you know Taiwan that they'd be willing to lend a hand because of that strong connection to their classmates. Did it also make you reflect on the competitiveness of schools in America when you've lived that collaboration and this nice, uh, you know, help each other out. Yeah, I never thought about it. But now that I'm thinking about it, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, get, I didn't have as strong of a bond. You kind of had to like find somebody who you got along with in America and then said, hey, you want to work together for homework or for this project. But it wasn't like a assumption, I guess, that you would all work together. Maybe it's because the social demographics is different in Taiwan versus America. But yeah, in Taiwan, like people would be like, oh, you know, are you prepared for the test? And I'd be like, I don't know, how should I prepare? And they're like, oh, this is what you should do to prepare for the test. Or like, you know, we have these like old questions that you can like review that it's not going to be exactly the same, but they're going to be similar. And I was like, okay. Like, I didn't know about any of this in the first semester, but like, as I stayed with this class, they gained more and more, integrated me more and more into their style. So... <laughs> It was like this one really huge study group. You know, in America, you have like all these different separate study groups. But in Taiwan, I felt like it was this huge study group. They would all meet up together and all share their knowledge. So I think that's also why they do so well in school is because the teacher is teaching them, but everyone around them is teaching them. So I also, I wanted, never, to point yeah, out, so. Yeah, I also wanted to point out that you also chose one of the most competitive fields ever like when you look at your resume engineering mba med school those are really highly competitive things where you're mostly ranked based on your people and usually you have entrance exams that are pretty hard to get yeah so it seems like it's a little counterintuitive to help each other out because you're competing for very limited spots at the school but on the other hand like yeah. you're, the more you teach somebody the more you also teach yourself because you're reminding yourself of the material so it's also a good thing and it shows a kindness of character rather than backstabbing, I guess. Yeah, I, I don't know what it's like to get into business school like my Taiwanese counterparts because I think it's much more competitive than an international student like myself. I think it was a lot easier. I mean, I did have, you know, Northwestern Engineering had a good grades, but I think from a Taiwanese perspective, it's much more difficult to get into these MBA programs. And so who knows, maybe they were really cutthroat in high school and college. But like once you get into MBA school, especially in Asia, Asia, like once you get into the big school, then they're like not competitive. I feel like in America, after you get into Harvard, they're still competitive. 
it. But like, who, who knows? Maybe it's different. I, I actually haven't been in you know the graduate schools of America, but I definitely feel like once the Asian like, counterparts like get into a certain level, then they start cooperating for sure. But like maybe in high school and college, it wasn't the case. I, I don't really know either. But yeah, I've yeah. never I, I've never personally like competed and stuff or like you know fought with my uh, classmates at all. But I, I've always felt just you know do your best and see what I mean. It is it is difficult to get into Northwestern now. It is difficult to get a med school for me getting into MBA school wasn't as difficult like I said because I was an international student but I'm sure now there's so many international students now trying to apply to like Chinese universities and Taiwanese universities maybe it would be much harder to get into um, so I guess I was kind of lucky in that sense. Do you think it could be with the island culture? We always have this vision of islands being chill, being touristy yeah. destinations and you're not as stressed out or people don't even walk that fast pace as people from the mainland you know. So yeah Definitely, that's a good be, point. Yeah, I don't know if it could be related to that, as in you're not yeah. raised in this like highly competitive environment to the point where there's not enough space because like you're just trying to chill. And I don't know, we have this view of islands as related to vacation. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously there's some truth to that. Um, you know, I can't speak for Asian Americans who grew up like on the West Coast or East Coast. Maybe they're, they were more competitive. I personally have never done an all-nighter. Um, except for snow removal, but I've never done it for studying. And I know like a lot of Asian Americans, they do these all-nighters to study for a test. And I've never had to like be in that situation. And I've never in my mind ever like, you know, cheated or tried to sabotage another classmate so that I could get ahead to me. I don't even know how I would do that, to be honest, because I never tried. Um, but maybe that's, that is being done by other students. I'm not sure. But yeah, I mean, it might be something to do with it. Yeah, I guess you'd have to interview a bunch of Asian Americans from different regions and see if there's any connection to them being from an island versus like a big landmass. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about your experience in med school. Tell mm. us more about how you lived that and what's the reason behind not finishing it? Um, so med school is very difficult to get into. I think it's just as hard to get into it as it is to complete it. I was fortunate to uh, have a partner and a helper. She was already in med school and she showed me the ropes on how to get into med school. So she told me, you know, what, what tests to take, how to prepare for the test. She told me which schools to apply to. She told me how to write my essays. So I had a lot of help. I don't think I could have gotten in without her help. So getting in was difficult. So just, you know, prepare for that. But I think once I got in, it was difficult uh, in a different sense, other than just intellectually, which I felt I was prepared for, just the whole social aspect of it. So socially, I was different because I was older, uh, about 10 years older than the average student there. Um, I was considered a non-traditional applicant. In some ways, that put me in a different competitive category. I think maybe it made it easier because I'm not just, you know, comparing against 20-year-olds. I'm comparing with like 30-year-olds. And I guess there wasn't as much of an applicant pool. And also, they need to get like a few people from every state. So since I'm from Hawaii, they got, you know, I checked that box. So I wasn't competing against people from like Massachusetts or like New York or any, you know, very populated state. But as a result of that, you know, I think the social demographic um, did come into play, um, meaning, you know, whether it's my upbringing, you know, my parents are not doctors. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of the students had doctors in their family or relatives who are doctors. You know, obviously race is a thing. There's different people, you know, it's mostly white. There are Asians. Of the Asians, though, like I said earlier, like not necessarily just because you're Asian, you're able to connect with them because some of them might be from Asia or some of them might be from the East Coast and I'm from like Hawaii. 
So our mentalities are very different. Uh, maybe back to what you're saying earlier, like, you know, trying to help each other versus like, you know, I'm fending for myself, you know, maybe me asking them, hey, let's study together. They're like, no, I'm not going to, you know, show you what I know. And maybe they didn't say that directly, but like, you know, maybe my ask to me seems very innocent to them was like, what does this guy, you know, want or need from me, you know? And so there's a lot of things that um, I had to adjust to that unfortunately I wasn't able to adjust to quick enough given all the demands on me physically, emotionally, and mentally. I basically got really frustrated. I was I mistreated in several situations and I didn't communicate properly to the right channels according to the school. And so I blew up. My way of blowing up was I got angry and I raised my voice. I yelled at these students and in their minds, they were scared. They were scared of their life. You know, they reported me as a threat to their safety. You know, I didn't lay a finger on them, but I did raise my voice. I, you know, threw in a, a couple F words just to show how angry I was at them. But anyway, in re as a result of that, they put me in this angry management program. They made me take a year off from med school. I went through all the anger management stuff. I, you know, did all the things they asked. I went back into med school. Uh, I finished my second year. I passed all my tests. I was able to successfully pass the first two years of med school. And But when I went into third year, I was faced with a totally different issue. It had nothing to do with my classmate. Um, I wasn't, you know, obviously I learned my anger management with my classmates, but then I had to start dealing with doctors. And these doctors all happen to be uh, middle-aged white females, otherwise known as Karen in most social media who feel they have a lot of power and prestige and privilege and able to kind of abuse their rights and privileges based on as a white female uh, in their in, towards their benefit. I was not used to this. I was not aware of this. So when it started happening to me, I, I didn't know what to do. You know, they would say, you're not doing this right. They would fail me. I would ask for improvement. They wouldn't give it to me. In my mind, it seemed like they were looking to basically fail me or remove me from the system without giving me uh, a fair chance to succeed. So uh, unfortunately, I had nowhere to turn. All of my deans were middle-aged white females. All of my course directors, clerkship directors were all middle-aged white females. Most of the doctors I interacted with were middle-aged white females. The few that were not uh, did like me. And then when I said, could you please vouch for me or speak on your behalf, on my, you know, my behalf or whatever, they were like, oh, no, I'm not going up against uh, these people you're having issues with. And so it was a very difficult uphill battle. You know, they then said I would might have to do another year again and then more hoops and things like that. Based on my time, my energy, my motivation, my financial stress, I was like, this is not worth it because I had the feeling that even if I did pass this test in third year, there would be a fourth year, there would be residency, there'd be more other middle-aged white females in the medical career. Obviously, you know, there's one right now, like the person Burks or whatever, like she kind of reminds me, the one next to Anthony Fauci, you know, I probably get along with Anthony Fauci, but like that other female, the middle-aged white female, the Dr. Burks, I think his name, like I, I probably wouldn't get along with her. So I've had a lot of trauma from that. Um, whenever I do run into a middle-aged white female, I assume the worst and, you know, put up my guard. And, and if it happens, then I'm prepared. But if it doesn't, then I'm pleasantly surprised. I'm glad that the nation is also aware of this phenomenon because I used to call them MWFs. And I guess now they have a name called Karen. So I guess it makes it easier for me to communicate kind of where I was coming from. But yeah, I mean, I've, I've been in all kinds of situations and uh, I didn't get a, like a course on it or any like primer on how to deal with them beforehand. So it was kind of like a life lesson and better because of it. But it was definitely at the time very traumatizing and difficult to you know live day to day and they were like you know that the worst part is they weren't 
blind to it. They're like, I'm not mistreating you or I'm not abusing my privilege or I'm, I'm a female. Like, how is this possible? Like, and that part was difficult. And when I tried to reach out to minority people, my, you know, minority females, or if I reached out to a white male or whatever, they would always just defer and say, oh no, it's whatever she says. And the worst one was when I talked to an Asian male doctor who was in his 60s. He has a PhD. He's well-respected, all this stuff. And then he told me, oh, we didn't have this conversation. You can't tell anyone we, we talk because I have my reputation on the line and I can't be talking to a problematic kid. So that also made me like, wait, so I'm going to become that doctor like him. And then one day, like an Asian male kid will come up to me and be like, I'm having problems. Can you step up for me? And I'm going to have to tell him no. Like I lost a lot of respect in him and I lost a lot of like heart in that, wow, this system is really broken. If like minority males can't even step up for their fellow minority males, like white males defer and like black females are like, oh, the white female knows exactly what she's talking about. So it was difficult. I don't think it happens in all medical schools. I don't think it happens, you know, only in Boston, but I definitely think it's happening. I've talked to a lot of my classmates at the time and I said, do you feel like you're getting disrespected or mistreated on this? And they're like, yeah, we just take it. We just deal with it. We don't make a fuss of it. And I think that's kind of my downfall is that I like spoke out. I, I said, no, this is wrong. This is, you shouldn't be doing this. Like, I don't appreciate you saying this or doing this to me. And uh, I guess I spoke my mind too much. And I guess that isn't appreciated in the environments that I was in. And obviously it ended up being a bad fit. So if I had done medicine in Hawaii amongst, you know, other people and demographics, maybe I would have succeeded. But if I was to reapply, people would ask me, why don't you go back to med school and finish it off? I would have to start off at year one and redo the whole thing all over again. And in my mind, I don't want to do four years if I've already done two of them. So I've given up on that dream at the moment. And given everything with COVID and public health in America and insurance in America and all these other issues, like, do I really want to be a doctor? I mean, they weren't even getting PPE. I mean, I would have been one of those doctors overworked, underpaid and like put in harm's way and like also blamed by all these protesters to be like, why are you shutting down the city? You know, like doctors and nurses in America were not appreciated. I think this is the wrong country to be a doctor. And I've tried so hard and put in so many hours and time and money and to be mistreated by my own fellow classmates and my own fellow like doctors and people I'm supposed to be looking up to as mentors. It's very disheartening. Like, like I have to work with that person. Do you think it's counterproductive because the reason why someone, a student is motivated to go to med school is to help others. That's what you see on college essays on applications. It's usually that you have this compassion to help each other out and to care about someone's health, including mental health. And then when you go to that school, it's the opposite. People don't help you out. Like they mistreat you. But not only that, they also in denial of that as if you could only help others, patients. Like there's this hierarchy where doctors help patients, but they don't help each other. Yeah. So isn't it it super weird? I mean, it's very unhealthy. And so I was like, I need to get out of here. Like it's not healthy for my physical, emotional, mental, financial. Like it just didn't make sense to continue. And that's why I stopped. I mean, yeah, you nailed it on the head. Like the issue wasn't the patient. The issue was the system. The issue was my fellow colleagues, people I should be looking up to who are supposed to be teaching me, they were the ones disrespecting and mistreating me. And that's an unhealthy environment, like so negative. So I I try to avoid the hospital as much as possible, you know? The worst thing is that we see this all over the place in movies and in books and series. Like you see that in The Devil Wears Prada, like it's totally normal to be mistreated by some monstrous. You see that in Suits, a Netflix series about lawyers Mm -hmm. where you have to Mm -hmm. be broken, literally mentally, physically broken until you get this epiphany. And then you're like, okay, I found this solution and it's 
because I was at rock bottom that I was able to get up from failure. And it's not the healthiest way to teach someone. It's not because you, you get like a hit and like a punch in the face that you learn better. And it seems like the system is just totally like punitive yeah. instead of uh, educative. Yeah. I mean, that's my own personal experience. I mean, I definitely reach out to other minority males in the healthcare system. It might be different for females. It might be different for a, a white um, person, but for me, and also I'm from Hawaii. So maybe, you know, other Asian Americans, like I said, can just have a higher tolerance for mistreatment and disrespect because they kind of grew up with it. But in Hawaii, I didn't grow up with any of this up until 18 years old. Like I, I didn't know what racism is. If anything, like you said, I was probably doing reverse racism or like I was mistreating other people because I'm a majority in Hawaii. So, you know, obviously I'm more aware of it now because I've received it. So, you know, obviously I'll be more aware if I give it to someone else. But and none of it was like overt, you know, none of it's like calling me the N word or something like, you know, chink or anything like that. They call it microaggressions. I think that's the word they use now. So like, it's all these small little things that like, or treating you like you're not there or just, I vividly remember there was one slide in my medical school where they had a picture of a white guy kicking an Asian guy in the balls. And it was supposed to be funny. And it's supposed to be like prelude to like when your balls are bleeding and like what to do in the ER room. And it bothered me, obviously, because I'm Asian American. And I, I just responded to the course director. And I said, I think you should either A, remove that slide or B, have an Asian guy kicking a white guy in the balls and I'm okay with it. And like, they were like, you're making a big deal out of nothing. And I was like, I mean, it's a small ask, like just do one of the two. And this is after like the ent- one professor like apologized to the entire class over email saying like he was not LGBT sensitive, you know, LGBT friendly in his, cause he, you know, made some comment as a straight white male about some LGBT thing and him being ignorant towards the LGBT community said something and the LGBT community said, oh, by the way, that was very disrespectful for you doing or saying something, you know, and you know, we would appreciate apology. So like he gave an apology to the entire class. And I wasn't asking for an apology from the professor to the whole entire class. Like I apologize for like putting a slide of a white guy kicking the Asian guys in the balls. I was just saying like for future reference, just remove the slide or like switch around the roles. And I have the email, like, the whole email thread and I brought in like the minority dean to like represent the minority and she's like you're making a big deal out of nothing too and I was like why am I wasting my time you know and obviously that's one of many things that I spoke out about that clearly bothered this school on trying to make their curriculum better. It's very crazy because it reminded me of this documentary that I watched about Walmart and how it makes you so replaceable and now looking back do you think that it's because so many people would want to die being in your place that they don't consider you as like oh you should be grateful being here it's not like definitely yeah definitely they, they brought that up all the time they're like we can rep- yeah you fought so hard to be in this system what are you complaining about this system yeah. since it took so many hours yeah. countless night to to study for it so people would usually not back up when they look forward to something they just accept the thing because they got and i did i was conditioned to always fight 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 or like i was you know prove my medal and so for me to one day be like i'm quitting was a huge deal like how many asian americans quit i mean they're probably surprised like this asian american quit like every other asian american would just lick my toes or whatever lick the ground you know it's just, it's just surprising to me so you know i just up and left i just stopped communicating with them and like i don't want to continue on that's it you know that is an interesting image actually because we do think about asian americans or asians in, in general as yeah. hardworking, right. and like you said they don't ever quit and it's really yeah. really weird or did, did yeah. you, like what kind of comments did you have no to- they didn't even tell me that they didn't even say they didn't even give me the quote-unquote compliment it just you know they never gave me time of day but i was just acting american in my mind and and 
And I think that that's difficult for everyone, though, like uh, an average Asian from Hawaii growing up in Hawaii and then living, you know, in, say, Montreal or, or Boston, it's jarring for not just the white people, but also Asians, too. The Asians expect you to act a certain way, too. They're like, dude, why are you acting that way? Why are you saying that? Why don't you just shut up? You know, and I'm like, no, because I feel like it's important to bring up my voice. And they're like, oh, but there's so many consequences to what you're doing. And like, yeah, the consequences, I can't finish med school, but like, I feel more comfortable with myself speaking out than being a doctor and shutting my mouth. I think that is hard for people to be like, wow, you know, he's got a lot of courage, but I can never do that. It's like, no, you can do it too. You just got to do it. Like, and, but they're not, you're not raised that way. So it's, it's foreign, but like, I was always raised by my mom and my dad to like speak my mind and you know stand up for myself and like there's that crazy rich Asian like I'm not a crazy rich Asian but there's that that thing where like you know that hotel in the very beginning like mistreats the Asian family and she's like obviously she has money and stuff but she speaks up and like and that kind of reminded me of my mom you know my mom was like oh no we're gonna talk to your manager like we're gonna get to the bottom of this like this is unacceptable <laughs> I was like that kid watching the whole thing going you know like granted my mom wasn't gonna buy the hotel but like my mom would like speak up and be like no I'm making a phone call to make sure this is right and so that's always kind of how I've been raised not to step on anyone's shoes or, or head but like you know not to try to cheat to get ahead but also to stand up for what i believe is right i think it's just diff I, th I mean just my story is just like a small little experience because like it's like you know everyone in the world in america is talking about race in america especially and like there's a lot of denial still like oh if I, this is this isolated case or you know this black man was threatening the police officer or you know there's all these like excuses and like that's half the battle like just the denial of it you know i think that was the situation where I was in. It was like, they're in denial. They're like, I'm not mistreating you. I'm not disrespecting you. You know, do you deserve this failure grade. You deserve to be in this situation. This is not my problem, Roger. It's your problem. That was always the case. It was always your problem. And you're trying to be a victim and all this stuff. And so I get it now, you know, when females say they've been sexually harassed or raped or whatever, and they're like, oh, victim shaming. Because like, yeah, I know what that's like now. Like I was victim shamed. So yeah, it also built up empathy, you know, for the whole Me Too movement and all that. Because like, yeah, it's not easy to raise your voice and speak out and say, this man or woman like mistreated me and that's the thing like also when a woman says a man mistreated them they're more likely to believe but when a man says this female mistreated it's like even you know four times harder to get a voice so it's difficult to navigate but i definitely have more empathy towards anyone who speaks out because it's not easy to speak out you know i tried to reach out to the newspaper and they silenced me you know i tried to reach out to lawyers and they're like oh you know we can't take your case or you know it's going to be very expensive or you know they come up with all these things you know i don't know if you watched there's like the nixum or there's like the sex cult thing. Women were being mistreated by this sex cult and they went to like the New York Times and it took them like a year or two years. And they had like all this evidence, like much more evidence, like physical, visual evidence of like them being branded and all this stuff. And it still took like a year or two, the newspaper to publish it. And it's just crazy. If, if that newspaper article didn't be published, then this whole sex cult would still be around right now. Like that crazy. So the power of the media is super powerful, but yet at the same time, you make the assumption that like the media is publishing everything, the truth, but like they've got like this huge backlog of truth and they're like it takes forever for some years and for my case maybe never i mean will we ever see you know we see a news article about asian americans being discriminated to get into harvard but what about the asian american discrimination when you're in harvard or when you're in tufts medical school like no one has that story yet so will that happen before i pass away i don't know but you know hopefully someday it'll come out and it won't just be me it'll be hundreds if not thousands of people speaking up about this mistreatment so you're talking about censorship how did you feel when the school sent you to that uh, anger management program did you feel like it was a way for you to shut up a little bit to justify okay so this guy has something wrong that's why he's speaking too much as in like they're trying to look yeah 
voice. Yeah, I mean, it, I think, you know, they're focusing all the all these problems happened, all these problems with my classmates and these doctors It's all because of Roger. So Roger's the problem. So Roger should be fixing it. And I wasn't uh, against that. I took all of the suggestions and did everything they asked me to do. But they did nothing on their end to improve the situation, which to me bothered me a lot. And there's no recourse. There's no one I can go to in the school or outside the school to fix that problem. They basically said, Roger, you do A, B and C or else you can't continue med school. And I couldn't say to the med school, no, you must do A, B, and C or else you cannot continue as a med school. You know, like there's no opposite side to it. And they take a lot of money from unethical people like the Sackler family who created the whole heroin opioid epidemic in America. Like our school name was the Sackler Medical School. I mean, they took millions, if not billions of dollars from this Jewish family that like ruined tons of people's lives. So they'll take the money, but they won't be ethical in their own operations. And to me that, I mean, the the sad thing is, is maybe that's just the standard to the norm like you know oh roger maybe your story is true and valid but like this is just how it is that's the crazy part like that's just how it is like you got to just accept it so i don't know how much progress we'll get and like you said there's just a lot of asian americans just waiting in line and just like we'll do whatever it takes to become a doctor that maybe they'll just get rid of all the rogers in the list and just put in these very obedient and subservient asian doctors because that's always the thing they're like oh if there was really discrimination and whatever that you bring up then how come there's so many asian doctors like good question you know maybe we should ask them Maybe there are a bunch that went to Boston and they just didn't say anything and just dealt with it. I'm assuming that's the case, right? Maybe you'll talk to them and they'll be like, oh, um, this is off the record, right? Like, you're not going to tell anyone, right? Like, and they'll tell you the truth, but like not on public medium because there's an Asian doctor actually that shamed the hospital. I think his name's Dr. Gu. He also like uh, had a controversy with Donald Trump because Donald Trump blocked him and he said that's like a violation of public speech. But there's a Dr. Gu who spoke about his racism in a Tennessee hospital and they just canned him. They like fired him. They got rid of him. So it's like, yeah, Asian Americans are speaking out and they're getting their careers are being damaged, kind of like the Colin Kaepernick of football. Are people aware? Is this like a thing that's hitting the media? A little bit, but I don't think it's a well-known phenomenon yet. Yeah, so we often hear that doctors show less compassion because they have less time to deal with small issues such as feelings because their energy is just put into so much stress into like moving around trying to save people's life and when you have to deal with death almost like on a regular basis you almost have to shield yourself from those emotions and not have to care so much and not get too attached to anything or anyone just because you might lose it and happens as part of the job so i'm not saying that all doctors are like this i've met like very compassionate doctors uh, when i worked at the hospital as well but like it seems to be the stereotypes and what are your thoughts on this and do you think he could also contribute to the system being being as cold and helpless as it is. I mean, I'm reflecting on my good friend. He's a doctor and he's doing great in his career, but maybe due to the things that you're talking about, he is having difficulty with like finding a life partner. Like maybe he can attract a female, but to maintain a relationship with someone uh, involves a lot of you know emotional bandwidth, like you're saying. And maybe not necessarily saying that's his case because I don't know his case, but like that might be one thing going on in his relationships. My older brother, he's a doctor, but he he's a radiologist. So he doesn't have to deal with death, I guess, on a day-to-day. So he might be affected, but not as directly as someone who sees death on a day-to-day. And I personally have also seen death. Like I've seen people die in front of me. Uh, Not a lot, you know, maybe two to five times. I could count them on my hands. But I think if you start seeing it like every day, like you could count them like 500 to 5,000 deaths. Yeah, maybe you do become desensitized towards feeling your own emotions because you have to like, it's like a protective defense mechanism to, to survive. It could also be a personality trait because I've worked for seven years with animals, rodents, mice, and rats. And the more I work with them, the more my compassion increased to the point where the more I moved on with that type of research in vivo, the more I want 
wanted to do something for the cause, give money to animal charities or becoming vegetarian. Like I found solutions because the more I went onto it, the more I couldn't stay blind or in denial. But there are other people working in the same lab as me. They've been there for like 20 years and they really don't mind killing animals because they see them as tools as part of a advancement for science progress. And it's a totally valid point. Like you can do whatever it takes so that we have medication, we have drugs and vaccines. And it's the same with a veterinarian research you can also sacrifice animals to save other animals mm. so it's not all bad it's not all black and white like it serves mm-hmm. a greater purpose even though it involves mm. death some people might get desensitized some people might get more sensitized mm. and i yeah. think i made the right choice by quitting this type of research and i'm working with patients which is more aligned with my values of trying yeah. to save rather than sacrifice to save yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's good you've gone through that journey and become more aware of what you want and don't want yeah eventually you learn what's good for you and what's not good for you and, and like you were saying raising your voice is is first of all listening to yourself listening to what you believe in and not just repressing a part of what you think is wrong just so that you can attain a diploma a career or a salary it's important that all the way throughout this journey that you align with your values after you get that diploma at Tufts you would have worked with the same kind of people like it's very hard to get away from the system after you've invested so much time and money yeah that's the bigger reason why I quit wasn't just like what was in front of me but like the whole like future of 10 20 30 years and maybe there was a light at the end of the tunnel but if there wasn't then it's like i invested even more time and money and for what reason yeah so yeah which led us to how did you get into snow removal so yeah after all that trauma mentally and emotionally and physically i just decided that snow removal was like kind of a therapeutic way to use my body and and to clear my mind of all that kind of pain and trauma uh, i just started doing it for people online i would offer my services i didn't know how much to charge i would just do the work and i said pay me what you think i'm worth and then over time i just raised my prices continued to do the work got good reviews online got a lot of business and traffic and marketing and you know search engine optimization stuff and now i have a thriving business that i'm very happy that i have and i have a lot of workers now who help me with it like it's a full circle because you did get an mba and now you're kind of back into business yeah i'm definitely using my business degree more than uh, before and i think i enjoy this business because if i do feel like a worker or a customer is being disrespectful or mistreating me then i can just remove them from business or interactions with them you know just say thank you but no thank you kind of situation and so you know not all customers are happy with that i've gotten one star reviews because i dropped customers that i didn't want to have a relationship with but for my own mental health and emotional health i had to just try to remove all the negativity out of my life so that's definitely what i enjoy about the business i mean it is a stressful business there's all these you know nothing's perfect but the thing i love about it most is i can kind of regulate and decide kind of who i work with and what price i offer and what services i do or don't do you know if i don't want to do a property or i don't want to do with the person i just say sorry or i charge them double triple and then have someone else deal with them something like that do you think that this this journey to grad school led you to become more of a justice seeking kind of guy and you would not have been like the same entrepreneur in snow removal if you had not gone through the misery yeah um yeah i mean if i stayed in hawaii i don't think i would experience half of the experiences i did so definitely moving to the mainland exposed me to a lot of these types of situations and people and yeah i probably wouldn't be owning this business if i wasn't forced in a situation where i had to pick and choose i've been an employee 
employee most of my life before being a business owner. And I didn't have a choice over my coworkers and I didn't have a choice over my boss. And sometimes those interactions weren't very healthy either. And obviously either they fired me or I quit. And so, you know, with a business, the only reason why I would stop running my business is either I no longer get customers, which is not currently the case, but there's a possibility you could lose all your customers or there's no workers that want to work for you anymore, right? Cause you get all the work, but there's no one who wants to do it. And I guess the third one is I personally just don't want to do this anymore, right? So I personally just say, you know, I don't want to be in Boston or I don't want to do snow removal anymore, but all these are all in my control, which is what I like about it. It's like, I get to choose if I don't want customers. Like I could choose tomorrow by just doubling, tripling my price and all my customers might leave, right? Or I could pay my workers half as much and they'll all leave. Or I can just say, I'm no longer doing the business. But like all of this is in my control and, and I have to live with that consequence. But when you're an employee or you're a student at a medical school, there's so many factors that are out of control that you cannot control. And, and in my case, the more I tried to control it, the more out of control it got actually. So it's counterintuitive, but I feel like with my business now, the more I control it, the more I do actually have control over it. Mm-hmm. And do you get enough business to survive the whole year even in the summer yeah. when it doesn't snow? Yeah, yeah. Correct. Yeah. So this business is at least right now, uh, based on my accountants telling me the numbers, but it is profitable enough to take care of the whole year. Um, I also have a landscaping business, but the vast majority of my revenue is snow removal. So landscaping, I kind of just do for my snow removal customers, like half of my snow removal customers, like, oh, do you also do landscaping? So I'll say, okay, yeah, sure. I can take care of landscaping, but it's definitely not the main chunk of my business. I just do landscaping just to keep the lights on and the doors open and that kind of stuff. Okay. But you grew up in Hawaii where there was no snow. Right. Right. So I happen to be good at it. Uh, I don't know how or why. I'm good with a shovel, a snowblower. I, I don't personally plow any driveways. I have other people plow for me, but I'm sure I could learn if I had to. But I, I think attention to detail, you know, attention to quality, attention to communication. You know, I learned how to be a good communicator in medical school, asking the right questions because that's how you have to do differential diagnosis. Kind of a sense of fairness and right and wrong. And integrity, being honest, you know, or keeping your promise. He's showing up on time, showing up at all. These are all important factors to the success of a business. So yeah, I mean, I make mistakes too with my customers, my workers, but as long as you learn from them and try to improve, um, that's all you can ask, right? If you keep making the same mistake over and over, then probably not a good idea. Yeah, for sure. And it's nice that you're willing to adapt as well, like from your cultural background, your traveling and also your education. There's a lot of changes, a lot of transitions that also makes you very adaptable for the, all the types of customer you might have. Well, do you think it's possible that you also extend your business to other cities? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the next step, right? After we do a really good job in Boston and we feel very comfortable with this market, then yeah, we definitely can expand to other cities. We have software now, you know, we could just establish a new office and build up the customers and, and the workers. Basically, copy and paste, basically. It's definitely a possibility or we might sell the software as a service to the existing providers in these cities and try to help them with a more efficient process and a better software. So there's definitely other avenues but my focus right now is just becoming like the number one snow removal provider in Boston. So whenever there's snow in Boston, they think of me. And when I feel like I've got like the vast majority of the market, like one third or half of the market, then I think it'll be time to move on because we have to prove to ourselves and to others that we are the number one snow removal provider. And then people should be asking us questions.
questions like, how are you able to do this? Why is your quality and service and pricing so good? And, you know, and then we'll say, well, we have a unique process and a unique software that allows us to do this. Otherwise, we wouldn't be successful. And obviously, we have great workers that help us too. So that's kind of what my vision is for the business. But I like that it started as a, as a therapeutic moment yeah. and then became yeah. a business and it became your life and it became your source of income. Yeah. Isn't, yeah. isn't it like funny how, how the universe works that you had like sort of like in the movie that we were mentioning earlier, you had to be broken into pieces so that you have to find some sort of help and that help became sort of like your path, your destiny. Yeah. I mean, it definitely helped with clearing my mind and yeah, it, this business has definitely helped me in many ways. So I'm definitely thankful for a snow shovel and snow and people needing my help. That year when I first started that business is the year I quit and, you know, I was questioning, did I make the right decision? And, and I had all this emotional trauma and I had to like, I guess, shovel my way through it, literally and figuratively. So. Literally and figuratively. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... So I, I feel much better emotionally, physically, all that stuff that I, I can kind of look at it and not like cry or like get really angry or have like a really strong emotion to it because a lot of it was going through my head and through my muscles of working through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely appreciate the good advice. Do you have a last one for our listeners? I'm just looking forward to future podcasts of, you know, seeing and hearing other people and share their stories as well. Yeah, I'm looking for social change and like obviously social justice and hope that everyone is treated fairly and equally and respectfully yeah that we all have a we all have a responsibility in this Mm -hmm. to treat someone the way we want to be treated okay thank you so much for being on a podcast hope to see you soon bye-bye bye thank you so much for listening to this episode of education monsters i hope you liked it if you'd like to take a french lesson with me don't hesitate to go on the education monsters website to book a class I'll be super happy to get to know you and we can practice languages together. Don't forget to subscribe to the website and you'll get a notification when a new blog article comes out. Last but not least, please, please, please consider making a donation to my Patreon account. This education project means so much to me and I'll greatly appreciate it if I can have your support. Thanks again and I'll see you for the next episode on Thursday.